everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Vincent Achety. He is the CEO of Mental Health Colorado and a member of Colorado's Jail Standards Committee. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me. To start out, what is your background and what is it that you do now? Uh, Well, so Mental Health Colorado is the state affiliate of Mental Health America. We're a 501c3 advocacy organization uh, working to promote healthier minds across the lifespan for all Coloradans, as we put it. And um, we focus on promoting well-being, uh, access to care, supports, and services, and ending some of the discrimination and discriminatory practices associated often with mental health conditions. We have a national initiative we call Care Not Cuffs, which is our effort to build healthier, safer communities by rallying more folks to respond to those with unmet health needs with health care instead of with uh, criminalization and punishment. And can you talk a little bit more about that campaign? Because that that's a big thing uh, right now um, in a lot of communities across the country. The biggest mental health provider is the county jail, which is not ideal. So what are you guys trying to do about that? Well, what we're really trying to do is help expedite a long overdue and much needed shift in focus of effort across our communities. And we have a lot of good examples of Care Not Cuff's work, as we might describe it, which is getting things right and understanding that many folks who end up in jail and in the prisons, making them our de facto psychiatric institutions are really folks with these unmet health needs. But wherever we have these efforts to redirect people more appropriately toward healthcare, they seem to be pilot efforts with short-term support that meets the needs some of the time for some of the people, uh, rather than an all-in commitment on the part of communities to meet people's healthcare needs and really focus on those evidence-based efforts to promote better individual and community health outcomes than have ever been 
established for the current default pathway. And what is the Colorado uh, Jail Standards Committee? So uh, the Colorado Jail Standards Commission was created in statute by the Colorado General Assembly. Uh, it's the first time that Colorado has had a jail standards commission, and the commission has been charged uh, by the legislators with making recommendations for a set of general of standards for jail operations that span the entire gamut of uh, jail experience from intake to discharge. So what kinds of things uh, does that commission work on? Yeah, so I mean, we're about midway through uh, our work. And, you know, one of the things that I found encouraging about the commission's work is that the very first set of recommendations that the group worked on were focused on healthcare access, uh, really acknowledging that jail is a, a principal site for healthcare access for individuals. You know, one of the things that I think that characterized the, the focus of the commission's work are on that continuity of care and understanding that many of, you know, first of all, um, beginning with a preamble that reminds everyone what is not generally enough understood, and that's that jail is predominantly a site for the incarceration of individuals pre-trial uh, who have not yet been convicted and are therefore have presumption of innocence. And what we know about these individuals is two things, that they've got charges against them and that they've got unmet health needs. Those tend to be the two things we know about these individuals. To that end, what the commission's been discussing really is that continuity of care or the establishment of care uh, for individuals once they come into custody in this setting. Is your background in, in mental health care or what is it? Uh, my background is in community care management. Uh, we've been working in um, quality, improving quality care for Medicaid enrollees and acknowledging that people's complex conditions are often what make them susceptible to falling through gaps in our systematic, in our system of care. Um, one of the chief drivers of people's recurring reliance upon safety net systems and emergency interventions are unmanaged mental health conditions. You know, what changes do you think we need uh, to have in, in our system? Well, so it depends on where we're going to start talking about the system. And, you know, because there are specific things with regard to incarcerating people in jail settings that I can mention. But by the time we're incarcerating somebody in a jail, uh, as, as you pointed out, as is the default pathway, this is late in the game for supporting somebody's healthful outcomes successfully. 
And so I could say a few things about what jails need to be doing more effectively, um, but I can also talk about what needs to be happening more effectively before anybody gets as far as jail. In the well, I think both both things are really important. So uh, why don't we start at the beginning and, and talk about what we should be doing before they get to jail, because we want to avoid them having to get to that point in the first place. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it becomes the recurring theme in the context of conversations with uh, fellow commissioners on the Jail Standards Commission. This is really the crux of the matter is the lack of a reliable alternative to jail in our communities. Um, so it's really because we do not have an adequate continuity of care in the community that we end up with in the situation where we are now. And it begins with acknowledging that, first of all, acknowledging that the reason why we're in the boat we are is a habit of prejudicial sort of discrimination on the basis of certain health conditions. Uh, we as a community and culture are evidently uh, more comfortable with failing to meet people's health needs when they are mental health related needs uh, and allowing those folks to slip into a pathway toward criminalization and incarceration than we are for example, with COVID, uh, where we rapidly overnight as a country transformed our system of healthcare access in order to meet the expanding need of COVID patients. We see nothing like that rapidity of response in order to react to the public health epidemic, which is mental health, uh, which continues to do what it does in terms of defaulting to the jails and prisons. We need to understand that people's mental health depends on certain key factors to stabilize them. I mean, one of the drivers uh, is support, the lack of widespread availability of supportive housing. You know, we live in a tough community when it comes to the cost of housing and the difficulty of earning a wage that sustains rent payments. And so a con as a consequence, you know, certain people's health conditions make it very difficult for them to maintain that kind of steady rate of employment uh, and meet the essential, you know, baseline for supportive housing, for paying for housing. Uh, and so that's one of the drivers of our homelessness epidemic. What we did as a community uh, starting in the mid to late 60s was a process of shutting down the large public psychiatric institutions, um, which, you know, to this day remain the source of source material for horror movies, because at the time they were largely warehouses for mentally ill with very little in the way of quality of care. Uh, taking place in a consistent way in those settings. And um, it was right and appropriate that folks in the Kennedy administration recognized that storing people in places where they were as likely to be neglected and abused as cared for was not a great path. 
and they proposed the alternative solution of creating many smaller community-based settings in which people could be cared for more appropriately. Uh, but that alternative just never materialized. And so what we had as a consequence is what we've become familiar with as the trans institutionalization, whereas the psychiatric institutions were downsized and closed, we saw the growth in the jail and prison populations. Uh, so what we really need as communities is to build back in that pathway to an alternative and acknowledge that mental health conditions sometimes require supportive housing uh, over time, whether a short time for stabilization purposes or a longer time in the cases of more serious illness. I know out here in California, we have a tremendous homelessness problem. I actually follow Colorado a little bit and know that there are similar problems with homelessness and cost of housing. Out here, the governor has tried to push forward kind of this uh, forced uh, treatment for, for mental illness. Um, a lot of um, providers and experts kind of disagree with that approach that they feel like, you know, forced treatment isn't the way to go about doing it. But I think, you know, I think there's a level of frustration on the part of officials because the problem is so intractable. Uh, what, what's kind of your assessment of all that? Yeah, you know, I, we've had a lot of discussion about forced treatment and medication over objection. And to, for from our health advocacy perspective, it comes down to this. Uh, if we are using all of our science and shared common purpose to make care accessible to the individuals who need it in a civil setting. Uh, and by making accessible doesn't just mean that they're open doors, but that there's also more sort of proactive engagement of folks who need care. Then the need for medication over objection would dramatically decline because if somebody has is if we are systematically taking the trouble to establish a person-centered therapeutic relationship with people that is plainly and demonstrably aiming to support their better outcomes then the getting to the point where you need to restrain somebody and administer medication over objection is much farther out than it is in our current condition where access is scarce in a civil setting and folks are instead incarcerated, held against their will and treated as criminals. Uh, talking about getting to a place where we need to administer medication over objection in a civil setting is a really different kind of a conversation than the conversation that we hear going on uh, where people are agitating for forced treatment in carceral criminal settings. Right. It's, um, like, it, it's almost like, uh, you know, we have crafted a community where 
our judgmentalism regarding the substances that people choose to self-medicate with uh, has created this setting where we will incarcerate people so on the basis of their self-medication and then talk about forcing medication on them. And it's a little bit dystopian when you look at it that way. That could take us down a whole other uh, rabbit hole, but I, I agree. So when we get to the jail setting, what are you looking at? What kinds of changes? Obviously, we have a system, and I mentioned this stat earlier, that in a lot of places, the largest mental health facility is the county jail, and, and they're, not, they're not set up for it. I mean, I've been watching competency hearing out here. And this guy is suffering from schizophrenia and he killed two people and he's on suicide watch and they're trying to get him treatment and he's refusing treatment. It's a nightmare. And they're not set up to be able to handle a guy like this, but the system isn't set up to be able to deal with it either. And, and nobody is going to be satisfied with the outcome, whatever they decide, because something horrible happened. And, you know, it's pretty clear that the guy behind the something horrible is a very sick individual and not an evil individual, but just very seriously mentally ill. I mean, how do we how do we fix this, I guess, for lack of a better question? <laughs> Sure. Well, and it's, this is definitely one of the toughest questions, and you obviously know in Mitchell, we have a competency backlog issue here in Colorado as well. And, you know, our position as health advocates is that that state of advanced state of disease for an individual like this, who is such a threat of harm to self and others, if we have a system, a system that has earlier identification of needs and access to care, a lot of this kind of advanced disease may be preventable. And so that's that whole civil side of thing that's just missing. When it comes to where we are now in terms of the jails and their ability to do the job that they're not cut out to do better, some of the things we've been focusing on are that continuity of care. So, for example, it's fairly commonplace in jails for newly incarcerated folks to be taken off whatever psychiatric medication they may have a prescription for. And then the in-house jail health care may put such an individual on a totally different medication based on whatever that jail's formulary, you know, whatever the, the medication is available within the formulary of that jail. And that's one of the key points of our Jail Standards Commission is really pushing back against that disruption of continuity. Uh, we don't make people living with diabetes come off their insulin when they go into jail, except maybe inadvertently for a short span of time. Uh, there should be no discriminatory practice against folks with mental health conditions. Access to existing prescriptions ought to be maintained as expediently as possible upon intake in order to avoid people's decompensation and destabilization, which just exacerbates 
the threatening behaviors to self and others. Another key piece of it, and again, this is pushing back on our civil system, is that in jail settings, when the sheriff's office is determining that an individual is experiencing a health crisis, in most cases, the jail, the sheriff's office is able to transfer the individual in crisis to an appropriate healthcare facility to support in the wake of a stroke or a heart attack or some other kind of major medical crisis. And while the individual remains in the custody of the sheriff's office and the sheriff's office maintains safety, the care is provided by healthcare professionals in a healthcare facility. And this is dramatically different in terms of quality of treatment and non-discriminatory response because what we find it too often is that when the sheriff's office is acknowledging that someone in their custody has an acute health crisis underway and that crisis is of a mental health nature, what they find is that the healthcare partners in their community decline to serve and the sheriff's office is stuck holding the bag for the individual in crisis without the means to address that. And that is, it, I think it's a violation of the ADA and uh, the trouble is coming on that front. But it's really, it's, it's the sheriff sometimes trying to do the best thing they can and finding no appropriate partner in the community to do their part. Yeah, it also seems like, you know, when you're talking about sheriffs, there's almost a conflict of interest in that the law enforcement and then at the same time they're 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 now being charged with health care yeah that's it's just the totally wrong fit and uh if what we're interested in and what's ideal for someone's health is compliance with you know recommended prescribed treatment plans that voluntary self-engagement in a treatment plan is far easier to come by when it's being offered by healthcare professionals in a civil setting and not imposed by law enforcement professionals in a jail setting. And then uh, as we get close to wrapping up here, um, are you guys also looking at restrictive housing? Yeah, we sure are. And so here in Colorado, we passed a bill limiting the use of restricted housing for individuals with certain health conditions, including mental health conditions, but also pregnancy uh, and other things for which restricted housing may be a, um, you know, their contraindication in terms of health outcomes. But even the bill that we passed was ultimately limited to uh, only some of the state's largest jails leaving most of the state's jails unregulated by that bill. And so what the Jail Standards Commission is faced with is trying to make recommendations that acknowledge the vast disparity in resources that exist between some of the state's largest jails and some of the state's smallest jails, which in some cases are tiny. Uh, and the group has not finished writing even draft recommendations around restricted housing because these challenges are so extreme for a sheriff who 
is trying to manage somebody whose behavior is so dramatic uh, that seclusion is really the order of the day when it comes to protecting that own that individual and the safety of others. Uh, and that there and when there is no available healthcare partner in the community that is equipped to staff and seclude and restrain as needed somebody in a healthcare setting. Uh, so that is really the crux of the matter. And there, I think where the, the commission has been circling is the need for us to do more in a regulatory way to drive healthcare accountability to the rest of the system. That health and justice in a community are not separate things. Health and justice are intertwined. And, um, you know, as a community, we all, or county commissioners, have a responsibility to health and justice. Uh, and the sheriff does the sheriff's part, but we need our healthcare partners to do their part for the people with mental health needs. Um, and, you know, it just seems like we should know enough to be able to avoid you know, restrictive housing, solitary confinement at this point in time. We we know what this does to people. Yeah, and you know, even, you know, everybody was very excited to pass a bill that limits the use of restrictive housing. But even so, it is scarcely limiting the use of restrictive housing because if there's an, an unfolding crisis in a jail setting, this bill does nothing to limit a, um, a correctional staff's ability to immediately isolate somebody in a kind of crisis timeout intervention. And that kind of immediate segregation of somebody, there may always be a place for that kind of short-term intervention. All this bill does is established that people can't be secluded for more than 22 hours at a time without some um, relief into a different area for some kind of different kind of movement or exposure. And so it's not like the tool of restrictive housing is, is unavailable. All that's stipulated is that there be a little bit more infusion of relief into that. And so this is a tiny step in a better direction uh, when it comes to managing people's health and well-being in the jail setting, but it still leaves room for a whole lot of uh, traumatizing and re-traumatizing seclusion. So overall, would you say you're optimistic or guarded or pessimistic about the direction of things? Good question. You know, I think that in terms of leadership and growing understanding, I'm optimistic because we've had some years now of bipartisan recognition that defaulting to jails and prisons nationwide as our de facto psychiatric institutions is not sustainable or acceptable. Uh, and there's loads of people working on alternatives. I think that's where the most vibrant conversations in health and justice are is coming at this in a different way and coming working for different solutions. And so that that combined commitment of leadership makes me optimistic. I think we'll get there. 
eventually, if I'm doubtful or hesitant at all, it's because the magnitude of the problem is enormous and not diminishing. We have a population in greater crisis all the time, including a young people's population in a state of emergency, and those folks are all at risk of adult incarceration and will become adults if they're lucky within very few years time. And so the volume of the problem makes it really hard. And I think that we're up against a real philosophical divide in our culture where while there is great leadership recognizing that it is unmet health needs that drives a lot of our practices, there's still a lot of folks out there who are, you know, have poor understanding of health needs and great a sense of entitlement when it comes to disparaging people on the basis of their health conditions. Are you expecting a final report from this commission or what's the plan and when is the, the timeline? Yeah, good question. So the group is supposed to be finalizing and making its recommendations in January of 2024. And that's when the legislature will pick that up and do what it does in terms of trying to embed certain things in statute. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. This is a very interesting and timely topic. I think states all across the country are grappling with the exact same issues. Uh, very interested to learn about what's happening in Colorado and seeing a lot of overlap uh, to what's happening out here in California. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me, for working on this issue. We've been talking with Vincent Achity. He is the CEO of Mental Health Colorado and a member of Colorado's Jail Standards Commission. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.